0: Welcome back to the Sockin' Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm James Huang. I'm Dave Rome. And I'm Kaylee Fritz. How's everyone doing today? We are now in week, well, I guess it depends on where you are, but I guess here in Colorado, we're in week, what, like four or something of basically things being shut down-ish?
1: Schools, at least, anyway. Yeah, my wife's been keeping track of the days, and I can't remember what the actual day is, but yeah, we're like three weeks-ish, three and a bit weeks. I'm good. I already work from home let you know i just continue working from home uh i wear fewer pants now less laundry right way less laundry and my cat get lot gets a lot of attention and uh james you sent over your bread recipe and my wife meg likes making bread and she makes me bread every day and i really this could just go on as long as it needs to <laughs> it's all good <laughs> Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. And
0: speaking of the bread thing, I mean, I was we were just talking uh, before we started recording that uh, I'm experimenting with a pretzel bun recipe for this evening for tonight's burgers that we're going to cook up mm. on the grill here. And if that goes well, I will send that recipe to Megan as well. And if it does not go well,
1: I will not send it. This is the Food Alert podcast this, now. This
0: is the Food Alert part. Well, I mean, I think it's, a, it's safe, <laughs> safe to say that if I'm involved in any conversation, at some point, snacks or food in general is going to be involved because definitely let's 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 face it i mean there's a reason kaylee that you are skinny and fast and
2: i am neither of those things <laughs> so rome how are you doing in sydney how's, how's it going over there uh ah, I'm, I'm going great but uh, i guess to summarize how i'm doing uh last night for about an hour and a half i was working on a disney puzzle ho, ho. and no i don't have kids <laughs> so uh, isolation is going well um
1: but sweet. Which Disney puzzle?
2: Oh, it's I don't know. It's like a, it's all of
0: Disney. Right. See, all, oh. see here's see here's the thing. Like Dave is gonna do that puzzle and would have no idea who these people are. Whereas <laughs> I would look at that puzzle now because I have a six year old daughter at home. And uh, I would look at that puzzle and be like, Oh, that's so and so, and that's so and so, and that's so and so, and like this
2: was in this movie and so and so blah blah blah. That's Princess Frozen and then I would have
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then
2: and No, it's it's totally classic Disney. There's no there's no frozen oh, characters classic. on this one. So like old creepy Disney then. Yeah, yeah, old creepy but also like slightly newer like Dalmatians and
1: Aladdin and I guess yeah, old creepy mild Disney. misogyny Disney. Mm, yeah, not not really mm, so mild. My favorite not so mild. My favorite vintage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: let's just say Dave, I am I am very envious of you having the free time to be able to spend an hour and a half just casually doing a puzzle. Because as I mentioned, schools have been closed for a while now. My wife and I are still work tra- trying to work from home and uh, it is um, challenging, as anyone listening to the podcast who is trying to work from home with little
1: kids at home can attest. Yeah, we hope that we hope can that imagine. you continue your podcast listening through this. Uh, you know, throw some headphones on when you're doing the dishes or whatever it is. Th- throw the, it's funny. We've seen throw the kid in front of a movie. Get your headphones on. Listen to the podcast. Yep, we've seen uh, a change in the times of day that people listen to the podcast. So it used to be sort of big spike in U.S. morning. Uh, U.S. Evening and then Aussie Morning, Aussie Evening for commutes. And now it's just sort of all spread out. It's all random times. We get a bunch of listens on Saturday afternoons and things like that. It's been kind of interesting to watch the analytics, what this what this uh, coronavirus is doing to our media habits. What day is it anyway? <laughs> like, uh, let's see, I'm at my it's Thursday. Okay, it's Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> right. But <laughs> every Thursday. day is just
0: feeling exactly the same. It just feels
1: same, <laughs> Guys, before we go too far here, I, I would be remiss if I uh, did not mention the sponsor of this week's episode of the Nerd Alert podcast, which is Envy. Over the 13 years that Envy has been making wheels, they've positioned themselves as one of the premium brands in the market, both in performance and in price. In other words, they're very expensive. With the introduction of the Foundation Collection, however which includes the all new NV45 and 65 wheels for 1600 bucks. NV performance just became more accessible to a larger group of riders. Before you get too excited, that would be 1600 US. Using the same core design principles as used in all of their wheels, the foundation collection features best in class aerodynamics for the 45 millimeter and 65 millimeter deep rims, the wheels also feature the wide hookless bead design found on Envy's AR line of rims, which I know are a favorite of yours, James. Indeed, they are, and that provides optimal tubeless performance and pothole protection. Like all Envy rims, the Foundation Collection is made in their Ogden, Utah facility, and is protected by Envy's lifetime incident protection and five-year factory warranty. The new Foundation Collection wheel models are currently available at Envy dealers and on Envy.com. Thanks to Envy for sponsoring this week's episode. Envy, thanks for keeping us in business while so many businesses are unfortunately getting shuttered.
0: So kudos to you We do appreciate it. We do appreciate it very much. Yeah.
1: And actually, you could read about these on cyclingtips.com right now. What story went up this morning on Thursday? Well, uh, I think we're going to be talking about them a little bit later, right? I was going to say, speaking of news, we like to
0: kick off the Nerd Alert podcast with a little bit of a recap on what's been going on in tech news over the past couple weeks. And uh, normally, I mean, right now we are in, uh, I guess now the second week of April. And uh, in typical conditions, we would be gearing up to fly to Monterey, California to head to the Sea Otter Classic, which is basically sort of a... I guess kind of the the second major stop in the calendar year for trade shows. But this year there is no sea otter, at least not until, uh, I can't remember, either September or October. I can't remember what the postponed dates were proposed to be. But anyway, there is no sea otter right now. But uh, in place of that, what we have is a virtual sea otter that we've kicked off that we are sort of coined Pond Beaver.
1: And uh, I will say that you know Pond Beaver 2020. Pond Beaver 2020.
0: I, I I have seen now that other other outlets have come up with their own versions of Sea Otter using other uh, kind of plays on words. There, um, whatever tree squirrel. Yeah, you know whatever kind of body of water followed by some other weird furry animal that tends to swim in the water. Uh, but anyway, we have Pond Beaver, and I will say we have a, a much better graphic than anybody else does. And it's very true. We, very true, very true. And uh, we've already been covering stuff for the last week or so. So first and foremost, we have uh, Niner's new strapless frame bags, which is super cool because uh, normally frame bags attach to your frame with a bunch of Velcro straps that, I mean, they work just fine, but they're kind of unsightly. And then eventually over time, they do mar your paint. So these Niner strapless b- frame bags, uh, they're pretty cool because they bolt directly to fittings that are built into uh niner's mcr full suspension gravel bike and their latest range of the rlt in all three frame materials steel, a little bit of carbon and whereas normal frame bags are kind of you know they'll scratch up the paint and whatever after a while they'll look kind of funny they just bolt on they're super clean
2: and my, my favorite part about these bags is that uh there are other bolt-on frame bags in the market but my what i really love is that these you just know a size specifically for niner's own frames and you don't have to do any homework to work out what's going to fit, what's not going to fit. If there's a, a compromise in the fit, it's just like it's a perfect, basically custom fit for these but uh, for these frames. And the price is very reasonable.
1: Uh, are we ever going to end up with like an international standard for frame bag mount spots or something like that? No, no. I I would no. say no. Considering that, <laughs> I, I would consider these days we are
0: fortunate that we even have. A standard for where water bottle mounts are supposed to be in terms of mm-hmm. like the hole spacing and the bolt pitch, uh, thread, and diameter. Um, so no, I I don't anticipate that at all. No, I mean we'll give
1: it. So you're saying I need to lower my expectations a bit. I think you need to lower your expectations <laughs> to suit the current reality, um, because <laughs>
0: I mean, th- 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 in Niners' defense, or sorry, I should say to Niners' credit, they did go through a lot of trouble to make sure that they have these bags to fit every one of their bikes and so in addition to all the different sizes like i said you do have three different frame materials so you have different frame tube profiles as well and so they have different bags to fit like you know skinny tube fat tube and so on and so forth so it was kind of a lot of work so i do, I do give them a lot of credit for doing that they're super clean i will, I will say that mm. they look great so kudos to niner we'll see i mean, i would i would imagine that that concept will expand across the board for them uh i would like to see some more bags even i would love to see a standard for a big seat bag for example that doesn't just strap
2: on with some weird things or whatever but we'll find out what's going on so with this do you see a future of all frame manufacturers going the way of creating their own frame bags to suit their own frames or do you think this will remain a a niche
0: uh you know I, I guess it kind of depends on how big the bike packing thing is in general. Um, mm. and I, I shouldn't even say bike packing because I mean these these bags aren't really necessarily made for bike packing, really. Because I mean it, it's pretty modest capacity. It's not like yeah. they're just massive things for you know sleeping bags and stoves and fuel bottles and all this other stuff. Um, I mean, would every, do I expect do I expect other companies to follow suit? Yes. Do I expect every company to follow suit? Absolutely not, because there is a pretty big investment involved. And, you know, I, I think in addition to uh, this being a testament to how much Niner is committed to it, I think it also indicates a little bit how big the segment is for Niner. Um, because, again, I mean, Niner is not a particularly huge company. And yeah. to invest that kind of resource into that sort of accessory development, I think says a lot about how serious they are about it, which is good. Also, what we have, we have some new wheels from Fulcrum that were announced a few days ago. Um, the Racing Zero Carbon Competizione DB for disc brake. I mean, these are not necessarily a new model exactly. It's sort of like a, like an upgraded, uh, it's sort of just an upgrade of an existing model, the, the existing Racing Zero Carbon. Um, it has some cool little black on black finish. It gets their, their new top end cult ceramic bearings with these like cryogenically treated super hard steel races. So they're still hybrids, but they're more durable. They're lubricated with oil, not grease, so they spin faster. Um, they are expensive, go figure. But one million Aussie dollars, well, in, indeed, indeed, which translates to about what, like you know, fifty-seven U.S. cents, something like that. Sorry, sorry, yep. guys, you know the, the Aussie dollars is not doing so great right now. But uh, I have a set that is inbound that I'm going to include on a test bike for review pretty soon. Um, they do look really cool, not cheap, but you know, wide rim, some pretty cool features like a solid outer rim bed because they don't dream, uh, they don't drill the spoke holes all the way through. Instead they they have this thing called MoMAG, a a technology that they share with their sister company Campagnolo where they they have these aluminum nipples that they thread on a little steel slug and then they guide it from the valve hole all the way around to whatever spot they needed to get to, which sounds extraordinarily tedious, but Mm -hmm. uh, it lets them drill through holes. But hey, it works. You also get bladed aluminum spokes, two to one lacing front and rear, um, center lock disc interfaces, uh, pretty wide and tubeless compatible rim beds. Um, I mean, they look pretty good. I mean, they're not particularly aero. They're like 30 mils deep or something like that, but they're not really meant to be. It's really meant to be more of a kind of like an all-around climbing wheel. Um, but I think for people who are not necessarily looking for the latest and greatest for aero and are willing to spend a little bit more, that looks like a pretty good option.
1: They're super sexy. I will say that. They're, they're peak Italian design sexiness.
0: They're so Italian. And they're
1: also like and they're like 2600 bucks, right, US. So they are very expensive. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean uh, that that price um seems to be a sticking point for a lot of people and that's absolutely fair. I I agree, but yeah, you you when you look at it as a complete wheel system, they're quite different to what else is out there on the market and that every single component has been, you know, designed in-house to work with every single other component specifically. So kind of is like, you know, what I'd say is a compromise-free wheel package, which is uh is quite cool and you know they those fulcrums like especially the aluminium versions they have an amazing reputation in the market i know i know james has uh, great experience with the old uh, racing zeros and myself too it's, it's a wheel that i used to recommend all the time um, still do uh, so yeah i mean the price super high but i don't think it's unreasonable yeah
0: i mean on, on paper they are not the best value at all and and uh, there, there was a commenter who did point out, like, oh, hey, you know, you can get wheels that are deeper and lighter, that are way cheaper, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, 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 this is not necessarily a plug for Fulcrum. I would say that um, I would caution anybody out there looking for wheels that uh, any wheel's performance is going to be built of a lot more than just two metrics on a piece of paper. It is not just weight and uh, rim depth
1: or even rim width. There's a lot more to it. Plus, let's be honest, if you are in the market for 2000 dollar wheels, unless you're a bike racer, you're probably just going to go with the ones that sort of, like, make you feel the best, right, about buying. So if these ones are super sexy and awesome and have ceramic bearings and you just feel awesome riding them, if you can afford 2600 bucks $2, for a set of wheels, then go for it. Have fun. I, I, I don't know. I, I have sort of a – I have a bit of a problem with people screaming – value about stuff that is clearly not intended to be value driven right this wheel set is not intended if it was a value wheel set it would be 1200 bucks or it would be the envies that were in the 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 ad at the beginning of the show there's 1600 right like there are lots of wheels out there that are intended to be as good as they can possibly be for a price point this is just a wheel that fulcrum sat down and said hey engineers just make the best damn wheel you can go for it. Have fun. We don't care how much it costs.
0: (laughs) Right. People who are in the market for a, you know, Ferrari or something like that, they don't generally haggle with, they they probably don't haggle a whole lot with their salesperson. They don't say
1: like, yo, Hey, can you take 20 bucks off the monthly payment on that? Mm, No, (laughs) probably not. No, Yeah. no, no, no. Uh, It's, you know, yeah, different, different, different wheels for different folks that's you know i i I, it bothers me when people begrudge others for whatever makes them happy and if if buying super expensive all black italian wheels makes you happy go for it that's what i say if if i had that kind of money they would make me very happy totally
0: i would would say that (laughs) um dave i hear rotor had some stuff
2: coming down the pike as well what do you know about that so Rota, like most of most of what they they showed us and what we we shared, actually had been seen at Eurobike at least. Um, but it's now finally hit the market. So they uh, in this past six months they actually weren't selling it. Um, so that's notably like the in the new Inspider um, power meter, which is like I think it was six hundred and fifty US. Uh, and it's a spider-based power meter that works with their whole line of existing cranks. So that's everything from their like 150 millimeter long time trial crank all the way through to their downhill crank, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's meant to be like a zero calibration power meter. So you, you put it on the bike, you do a zero calibrate, um, a zero reset, and that's the end of it. You just ride it from there on in. Um, so I, I, I think that's quite a cool product. Um, I'd be keen to try one in the future. Uh, otherwise, yeah, they've got a time trial shifter now for their 1x13 hydraulic group groupset, um, which is interesting. Uh, I think that's one market that can probably benefit from losing the front derailleur um, as far as skinny tires go, whereas perhaps doesn't make quite as much sense on drop bar bikes. Um except for gravel. Uh, and then the other one was just, they've made an intro. Um, they've entered the e-bike market. So specifically the e-road market, they're now going to be offering high end cranks to fit, uh, for Zua e-bike systems. Yeah. That, that part I have to say kind of cracks me up a little bit because
0: e-bikes are okay. Granted, generally speaking, most e-bikes are not really renowned or even talked about or thought about as being anything remotely lightweight um but now i guess as we have this seeming growth in the e road bike market people are paying attention to that sort of thing a little bit more because i would certainly say that e that people who are riding on the road in general be they e-assisted or regular are certainly a lot more uh, a lot more sensitive to bike weight and i mean yeah, I guess if you can it's just like anything else, right? If you if you want to take a bunch of weight off, you got to shave it off little by little everywhere,
2: right? Yeah. For sure. And I think probably the most interesting part of those um that crank tease is that they kind of they teased that there's a new upcoming e carbon crank for the road. Um and they actually don't have a lightweight carbon crank on the road um for regular bikes yet, and I think that's probably a sign of things to come and they are extremely light so um yeah if i were a betting person i'd say stay tuned yeah because
0: i mean rotors claim to fame as far as manufacturing has always been machined aluminum and basically they machine basically Mm -hmm. just everything or they they basically make everything they can out of machined aluminum because they try to make everything they can in spain um and you know you got a bunch of whole cnc well yeah if you have a whole bank of cnc mills you can kind of make whatever you want right
2: yeah exactly um but yeah they did they do now have a carbon mountain bike crank and with that release of the e-road carbon crank uh, which is still a few months away um yeah i'd be betting that there'd be a a road version on the way that could save like somewhere between 70 to 80 grams from the existing competitively light alloy option
0: so it more interesting stuff to come from rotor i mean who knows i mean at this point we have pond beaver i mean I don't know. Are we going to have to come up with some sort of clever name for a substitute Eurobike if that doesn't happen either? Ooh. Yep. Oof.
1: Can we just yeah. name it? Can we base it entirely off of the uh, clothing shows that happen at Eurobike? Do they still happen, James? Uh, you know, last year, I don't... I haven't
0: bothered
2: I, going that into the hole for years. If I remember
0: correctly, I don't think there was a fashion show last year. What? I know, I know, because if I... That's if the I,
1: only reason to go.
0: I know, because I think... It, uh, if I remember correctly I do remember being in the press room on that end of the mesa the the mm. convention center and and and, and sure. it being sort of kind of unusually quiet and, and almost That's right. almost they now serene. Have conference
2: conference uh, chats I know yeah. I know
0: so and I guess in order to have a, a conference chat you cannot have booming dance music going on and a bunch of people mm. you know just wriggling their hips and in, in, in cycling
2: wear which is- so <laughs> so what james is saying sounds ridiculous but this is actually what was happening um they would have set times for these displays and clothing brands cycling clothing brands specifically would pay for their new season lines to be modeled on stage uh to the latest techno and disco uh tunes uh and it would all be
1: choreographed dancing um it's like local and... dance troops would just put this stuff on. They weren't cyclists; they were just like random people. Yep. They were definitely not were cyclists. Dances.
0: But what's even more yeah. what's even more amazing about the fact that they had that was the fact that there was always a pretty sizable audience. Like they set up chairs for people to kind of sit and hang out and check it out, and it was pretty much mm-hmm. packed all the time.
1: It was highly entertaining. I mean, you know, I, I went and watched every once in a while. I, it kind of just like, gave I'm me a, a headache. break in between meetings. Yeah, it, it kind of just gave me a headache a little bit so well, we'll come up with a we'll, we'll come up with a good uh uh eurobike name replacement sometime if we have to hopefully we don't have we'll,
0: to we'll, we'll see well uh eurobike was actually the venue that ceramics be typically used in the last few years to debut and what they showed to us was a new oversized pulley wheel setup for shimano grx and Altegra rx rear derailleurs and also uh, another arrangement for shimano xt and xtr mountain bike rear derailleurs Uh, both of those have oversized upper and lower pulley wheels kind of like what they have for all of the OSPW models which hence the name Uh, and then the same claimed benefits which basically you know you save a couple of watts essentially Um, it's you know this is one of those things Dave you did a full review of the OSPW system a while ago and you know and you know you didn't argue with what they were claiming but uh, I think it's just I mean they work to uh, some. They, so. they
2: go on the high end of things. Um, their claims are certainly on the high ends. I think the couple of watts is is based on um, maybe not a not optimizing your chain as much as it could be.
0: Well, sure. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that everyone kind of you know skews the numbers in their favor a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you take those those wattage claims at face value, I think if you were to save like a couple of watts, basically. Uh, even if you were to take those claims at face value, this is not really the most uh, Value laden upgrade, shall we say? Because there were, I think the the retail cost on these things is like five hundred fifty US and something like almost seven hundred Australian. Um, Starting eight. from as well. Yeah, because they offered an even higher end coated ceramic bearing version, which is supposedly even even faster. Um, but you know, if you're after every single watt and you want your drivetrain to feel wicked smooth and you just want people to know that you spent an awful lot of money i guess that's how that's what that's one
2: way you do it yeah i i think it's you know it's the sort of thing you'd buy with all the spare change you have after those uh fulcrum campion uh wheels uh competition how do you how do you say that Competizione. Yep. competition mm-hmm. it's hard when they remove all the vowels
0: Competizione. Um, they all
2: the vowels it was the yeah the, the c m p t
1: z n <laughs> i think it was <laughs> nope. it doesn't really nope. work in english nope. cup competition competition but because the like the italian language you basically cannot end a word with a consonant they just add an a at the end anyway hey it's great i love it i i am a huge fan of uh all things italian it's bicycle. fun <laughs> so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm it's totally it's, hard to, you know, it's hard not to it's hard not to be great. happy about it right it's I mean, great and then our our
0: latest bit of news from pond beaver uh actually this this coincides with our sponsor for this week apparently is uh, Envy's announcement that they have launched a sort of, a, I guess, more of a value range of carbon wheels that they are calling Foundation. Uh, Dave, you dug into this in detail. What can you tell us about these?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the ad at the beginning sort of uh, gave it all away, but um, that was a good summary.
1: But well, uh, so so let me let me stop you before you before you do this and just say that. So I handle the uh ads on these podcasts we're like i don't handle them i don't sell them the sales team sells them they tell me who bought one i handle like getting the script and things like that and i didn't tell james and dave that 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 envy was sponsoring this episode so when you guys put together the run sheet they were on there and we're like oh well you know it's natural it's fine but i just want to make it clear that like they're not in the episode because they bought the sponsorship those are two separate yeah, things
0: that is true what is not separate though is the giant check that they just cut to me though so so like <laughs> a, a, after after this podcast is over I am going to make a very unscheduled and ungovernment mandated stop at the local bank I'm going to go deposit my massive check and they, they sent it in like full on lottery Whole like Foods. sweepstakes style yeah 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 they they, they sent the check in full on um, sweepstakes style so it's like you know it's, it's like a meter by a third of a meter I'm going to have to like you know Put it in a giant SUV and drive it to the
2: bank and cash that. That's anyway. how they should pay all politicians in those giant novelty checks, just so everyone. Oh, if knows. only. Anyway, if, um, if only.
1: No, no. Politicians should have to wear the logos of their sponsors on their on their jackets, just like, like athletes, car oh. drivers. Hey,
0: hey, hey, Kaylee. You know this, this nerd <laughs> thing is kind of my responsibility for work here, and you know I don't want to get into that sort of thing because you're gonna start. You're gonna you're gonna start getting people to leave a bunch of negative comments on my podcast here.
1: Uh,
0: yeah. So uh-oh. shut it. Dave, what are we talking about, Dave, oh, the foundation, the wheels. about foundation wheels yeah so uh
2: 1600 is probably the big thing to know here that's about 900 us less than the uh regular envy wheel options um which is quite a substantial um saving i guess uh and then according to envy their new wheels are when you look at the weight and the aerodynamics and the performance, uh, they are quite confident that they beat the similar price competition from all their major competition um, from all their major competitors. So uh, it's a big call, uh, but yeah, I mean on paper, I haven't ridden a set, I haven't even played with a set. They're very new, um, but yeah, I mean on paper they look quite nice. Um, perhaps the one thing that's going to be quite polarizing is the use of that hookless bead on the rim. Uh, and that's the same as the SES a- AR wheels, which is um, that hookless bead for MV's point of view. They're quite strict with their safety requirements um, and they basically, they basically demand that you use those wheels with a tubeless tire. Whether you want a tubeless or whether you want a tube in it, you have to use a tubeless tire. And then even more after that, they're, they're quite specific with what tubeless tires you can use. Um, so I think that's something certainly to keep in mind with these wheels. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the hub is slightly cheaper than their regular wheel. It's got a slightly cheaper in spoke. Uh, and then the rims are, um, it's actually the exact same rim used front to rear. Even the hole count is the same. Um, and that's probably one of where the cost saving comes from. Uh, whereas their higher end wheels actually change the rim profile front to rear for aerodynamic purposes. Yeah, I mean, 1600 bucks is still obviously a lot of money, uh, no question.
0: Um, but I guess if you compare it against other carbon wheels that are actually you know where the where the rims are actually molded in the U.S. and granted, I mean just the fact that they're molded in the U.S. doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that they're better. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean it, the fact still stands that um, labor costs in the U.S. are still higher than they are in Asia or you know Eastern Europe or wherever some of these other companies are making carbon rims, and to be able to offer uh, you know a premium carbon we all for sixteen hundred bucks. I mean, it's pretty impressive, all things considered.
2: Yeah. And and that and for me, probably the the one selling point that would get myself over the line on these is that warranty that it comes with. Um that is a, a pretty generous warranty. It's it's five years against manufacturing defects, but um James correct me if I'm wrong. I was looking at it, it's it's a lifetime against like crashing and driving your cars in your car into a into a garage with the bike mounted on top. Envy um, will basically just do replace the damaged Envy component free of charge, and all you have to do is pay for the, the labor, and you know if you need new spokes and stuff like that, you pay for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty generous warranty.
0: I mean, it's basically in line with what most other carbon wheel companies are doing these days, I'd say. I mean, I think there are a little bit of variation here and there, um, but it, it does seem like companies have finally gotten to the point now where they are so confident in the strength and durability of the carbon rims that they are producing now that they can now make a financial argument internally to be able to back them up in such a liberal way with that, you know, that they're not going to just completely lose their shirts because people's people's wheels are breaking everywhere. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how many people listening have, um, have paid any attention to what Santa Cruz has done, for example, but um, you know, Santa Cruz, I guess they they arguably kind of kicked the whole thing off when they introduced their reserve line of carbon wheels. And and one thing that um, always sticks in my head, they, you know, they sponsored Danny McCaskill, as like the kind of trial superstar. And they put out a video where, you know, supposedly they handed Danny a set of wheels and they were like, hey, Danny, you know, try and break these. And you know, this is a guy who jumps off of like, you know, 10 meter ledges and you know flat landings on concrete and that sort of thing and uh granted i mean this video is you know basically an advertorial essentially but if you watch the video i mean danny is still beating the crap out of these wheels and they are supposedly not broken it's highly entertaining i would recommend watching it um and you know if if you believe that he didn't break i mean that's pretty impressive And the fact that they can do that with a carbon rim now that anyone can do that with a carbon rim is super super
1: mind-blowing yeah so particularly since like 10 years ago you just sort of look at carbon rims wrong and they would crack yeah
0: Yeah, i mean it really has not been that long ago that companies seem to have figured out the formula
2: so and and in that danny video if you haven't seen it it's uh he gets to the point where he can't break it through normal abuse so he just takes the tire off and starts riding stairs on it Um, and it's still not broken
0: pretty entertaining
2: and he still had he
1: still didn't
0: break it um so actually yeah. no i think he so, he, he so yeah he did break it at the very
2: way. very very end of the of the video i yes. think um yes but it but it got pretty it got pretty absurd at that point it,
0: it did it did i mean it was it was more like at that point he was just going completely above and beyond what any normal peer person would do to a pair of wheels and yeah like i said kind of mind-blowing but anyway yeah so so the warranty on those wheels is pretty is pretty awesome but again it does seem to be pretty much in keeping with what
2: other companies are doing now, so... Um, Such as Roval and Bontrager, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I would say, you know, there's always been some hesitancy to to buy high-end carbon wheels just because they are so expensive and they are extremely expensive to repair or replace if you do damage one. But um, at least now, for, for the major brands that offer that kind of coverage, you can invest that kind of money with, a, you know, I would say a lot less worry that you're just going to be flushing that money down the
2: toilet. So all this talk about uh, tubeless and carbon wheels and the development of, you know, clincher style carbon wheels, that probably leads us quite nicely into what's coming next. Well, yeah, actually, because as I said at the beginning of the show, we
0: are now in the second week of April. Um, at this point, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday. And Flanders would have already happened last weekend and this coming weekend, Easter weekend, uh, Sunday would have been the start of Paris-Roubaix. Uh, and under normal conditions, you know, Kaylee, you and I would be in Belgium right now, running around to a bunch of team hotels and I'd be you know, chasing down bikes and mechanics and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, we would be really deep into the tech coverage at those races. And one of the reasons why those races are so interesting is because you know the usage conditions of those races are so far outside of the norm of what most people do with road bikes that you just see all kinds of wacky technology, and uh, with a big emphasis on tires and wheels. And one trend that we have been seeing in general, not even just particularly at cobbled classics, but um, you know we've written several times that uh, a handful of teams and riders have been moving toward tubeless clinchers instead of tubulars. And uh, the big reason that they've been doing this on the road, at least anyway, I mean, if, you know, assuming you are, if, if, if as, assuming you don't take a cynical approach to this and, you know, don't just think that it's, you know, their sponsor's pushing it on them and whatnot. Um, but, you know, the data from a variety of sources does support the notion that good tubeless clincher tires are faster than the best tubulars, mainly because, I mean, for one, they're, they're more round than what you can get out of a door. So there's less of the kind of up and down oscillation. Um, uh, but I mean, you, you, without having a tube in there, you just kind of get less of that hysteresis losses that you get when you have a tube in there, even with even with latex, depending on, on how you're looking at it. But anyway, so you know, I would normally be looking pretty hard for tubeless wheels and tires at Flanders and Roubaix because it's always been the talk of you know where those things could possibly pop up a lot. Um, but since we can't do that, I picked up the phone and I called up uh, Jan Nicholas Junger. Uh, Jan Nicholas, I'm sorry, I'm sure I just butchered your last name. We had a big talk about this when I talked to you on the phone and I still just could not quite get it right. But anyway, I picked up the phone and talked to Jan Nicholas and he gave me a surprisingly detailed and candid discussion about what they were going to show at Flanders and Rouvet. So let's listen to that. Yeah, Nicholas. it's been quite a while since I saw you in person and thank you very much for taking the time to, to chat with me over Skype about uh, our Nerd Alert
3: topic today. Hi, thanks uh, for getting in contact and uh, yeah, nice to speak to you again. I think the last time was uh, in France uh, at the tour last year.
0: I think so. Uh, yep, correct, uh, which which we are very likely not going to have a meeting at again this year, probably. We'll, we'll see. Um, but speaking of races, uh, the Tour of Flanders was originally scheduled to be held on the 5th of April and uh, Paris-Roubaix, obviously, a week afterward. But now both of those races have been postponed. Um, and I know that, however, for you, for Continental, uh, despite the fact that both of those races are usually big showcases for, for traditional tubular technology, um, you guys had other plans in mind. What was supposed to happen there?
3: Um, So, when we introduced the 5000 on Tenerife, where you also have been, um, we presented a tyre that should be able to place um, the tubular. Um, Unfortunately, that didn't go from from itself to the pros, um, because probably um, some sponsoring of of the wheel sets limit uh, the choice of tyres. But we had a very good winter, for example, testing with Bahrain uh, McLaren, uh, very good connection to FDJ, who were very confident uh, in the tire wheel uh, choice they wanted to take, and also uh, working on tubeless and also tubular alternatives with uh, Sunweb. So we wanted really to show that uh, yeah, Conti is here and there and wants to to give the best material to pros that we can get one place better than last year's Bury Ruby May.
0: Did you have confirmation from any of these teams that they were definitely going to be using Continental tubeless tires at one of these races?
3: So uh, the the one team that in a whole wanted to take uh, tubeless tires to the classics was FDJ. Um, they are supplied with Shimano wheels. Um, they got a, uh, an, large enough stock so they could stock all the riders, all the captains, and also the um, spare bikes on the roof uh, with tubeless. Um, so we gave them 25s, 28s, and 32s. Um, they wanted to do that, Ryan McLaren, um Some riders, uh, especially Heinrich Hausler, uh, who have been testing with, wanted to take uh, the tubeless tires to Paris-Roubaix. Um, had them also on in Omelette Head Newsblood, where he had like, not a breakthrough um, showing, but uh, more like a comeback into a Classics campaign. Was was really um, surprised, positive, uh, positively surprised, and also confident how he rode the race. Um, yeah. So, those those two teams would have been on Tuporos.
0: So, with the tires that, that Continental supplied, are these fully production GP5000 tubeless tires, or are they something a little bit different for them?
3: So, um, they have the choice. Um, we, we gave them the tubeless tires last year, um, and back when Movistar was connected to Campagnolo, they used the tubeless tires, for example, uh, and the, Turo, and the Turo, Uh starting just, I think... Uh, just after the Amstel Gold Race. So that was the start. And of course, the, the connection to Peros is um, that we want to experiment a little bit, see where, where it takes. Um, so we had the normal ones in 25s, and for the 28 and 32 millimeter version, we tried normal ones and ones that um, have uh, a special support, um, another textile layer in the, in the carcass sidewall to yeah, make it more robust when, when the tubeless tire hits uh, the cobblestone.
0: So, But in the testing, obviously, the changes that you made to these tires for the, for the pro riders and the teams, I mean, I, I'm guessing there would not have been any uh, negative effect in terms of the rolling resistance compared to the production version. Is that correct?
3: So um, the textile that we include um, should be well known to you uh, from the fourth season this dura skin diamond shaped pattern in the sidewalls. Mm, okay. Um that is roughly about five grams. Um compared to the production tire and it increases um, the the rolling resistance. Um so you have a loss in the rolling resistance of half a watt. Um but only on on the lab scales we are having here um so we put them on um yeah metal lab test metal plate where we measured the the watts to point one of a, of a watt um, so that's what we see there I think um, in real world there was only benefits from it
0: so one of the I guess maybe one of the yeah certainly one of the biggest advantages for I guess the traditional Mm, sort of the traditional cotton casing tubulars that teams have often run for Flanders and Roubaix, is that you know they're very very soft and very supple. So you know the riders always say that they have better grip and they they seem to roll faster or that sort of thing. Um, but there has not historically been a lot of attention paid to the durability of those tires. So how are I, I guess if a tubeless tire that you are supplying to these teams, if they are almost identical in terms of rolling resistance, as far as the tubulars that they have been using, what would be the advantage then of using this tubeless tire if you have to change them to make them more durable for those races?
3: So um, for for Continental, our tires are made from polyamide. um, So we don't offer any cotton casings, professionals or the normal customer, um, and the tire of choice for the classic races in the past was the competition pro limited RBX, written um, from the likes of, uh, it's last year, for example, um, compared to a normal tubular tire that we offer that has uh, a double layer carcass. this one has a triple layer carcass and also uh, a rubber compound that has more abilities in the wet and less um, and or more protection uh, against cuts. Um, But that tire in the RBX comes with um, a rolling resistance punishment of probably 10 to 15 watts per tire um, compared to a really fast tubular option.
0: So if I understand correctly, then the tubeless tires that the riders were supposed to use, you are saying that they are pretty much the same as, uh, I guess, a a handmade cotton tubular from a different company like, uh, you know, Dugast or FMB or something like that. But you're saying that they are more durable. Is that correct? I I guess what I'm...
3: The tubulars that we we had in the past are more durable and... uh... Less, less good in rolling resistance, yes. And the tubeless tires that we would have offered or that we are currently offering, and some of the pros are still riding it in training for for fun or for their own uh, convincement um, and confidence into the tire or to find that, um, that one would have at least a 20 watts improvement on cobbles at 45 kilometers per hour.
0: Ah, okay, so, so there is... A big difference for rolling resistance at least compared to the continental tubulars that they were using before, um, while also being more durable then. So um, in terms of why the riders and the teams are interested in, what are the main advantages overall? Or do they just want to look were they just looking for a, a faster solution then?
3: Well, um, so the rolling resistance that you can measure in the lab differs to the real world, obviously. Um, what we see in the change from a tubular tire to a tubeless tire is that you can actually ride a uh, lower pressure um, obviously with the tubeless tire you're less uh, in the risk of having a snake bite same, uh, same problem occurs with tubular tires even if they're built very robust um, so you can go below three bars for example with the professionals Um, and with the lowering of the pressure you have uh, a longer longer contact patch and a longer contact time so a better damping so when you have a slow motion of a rider going over cobbles you could see that the tubular tires they were bouncing back or like upwards when you're hitting Cobblestone, and with very very low pressure um, it the, the tire forms itself around the stone and moves onwards uh, into the riding direction that the, the rider takes and not so much upwards so that's where the, the watts are safe uh, not only in the theoretical rolling resistance
0: Some of these developments that you were talking about with tubeless tires for these race conditions, are um, they're not necessarily new. I mean, I, I feel like uh, certainly some other companies have discussed performance advantages like that in the past, but there has still been a lot of resistance from, um, I don't know if it's riders or teams or mechanics, um, but there has been resistance to change. Um, so from from your perspective, Where has the biggest resistance come from and what what exactly is keeping these riders from making the switch?
3: So as as a professional team um, You're contractly connected to several companies to your bike manufacturer to your wheel manufacturer to your shifting group supplier and uh, the wheel and tire uh, manufacturer If that doesn't go hand in hand with um, what the riders or the team wants, um, then probably one of that partner is not capable to, to run the tupler system. Um, that's what I experienced, um, especially for the classics. So the package has to be optimal for riders to suggest to have the change from tubulars to tubeless.
0: What about weight, however? Because I know that is another aspect that is often talked about. Uh, I mean, these riders are are hypersensitive to weight, uh, even just a, you know, a handful of grams increase compared to what they maybe have currently. Um, so even with these, you know, the latest tubeless and the highest end tubeless race tires and wheels, uh, they're still a fair bit heavier than tubulars. So if even if there is a big advantage in terms of rolling resistance and durability in these cobbled races. Um, I mean, what do riders say about the increased weight? I would have to imagine that they they push back on that as well, no?
3: Well, the the weight obviously is heavier. Um, we at Continental with the 5,000, we don't make the lightest tubeless tire available. Um, that was also never our aim. We wanted to have a tire that is suitable and safe for etrto rims um, so that a tire can be ridden safely can have like a run run flat protection or when you run flat that doesn't come off of the rim Uh, and of course the idea of having a heavier option fears fears some riders but uh, on the other hand, also these riders are visiting websites, uh, visiting blogs, um, looks at a website like yours or bicycle rolling resistance. And they also see this test test says uh, the rolling resistance is decreased. So we should be running that and should be faster. So we are having teams that are moving forward and um, performance directors that are welcoming the technology. We're having teams that only want to have the change for the whole team and not uh, one rider or several riders to test it out. So there is currently something blocked. But um, yeah, with the example of of Movistar, like last year when when I was visiting them uh, around the dance classic, they had uh, the tubeless tires for training and they were riding next to each other in the training and were seeing uphill and in the flat the difference in rolling resistance and they wanted to use the tubeless systems. Um, so they were not taking the weight difference or n- were not feeling the weight difference uh, just until I, or we, I, and uh, the team told them about. So obviously, like like you had in your last node Alert, there's a big misconception about weight, because it's the easiest thing you can measure everyone has a scale so you can measure one bolt one tubular one tubeless tire against each other but uh, measuring watts is different luckily today a lot of people have a power meter but to have a real race simulation or to go up a hill twice um, with a different setup and riding the same watts is maybe not so repeatable for normal human beings.
0: Right, right. Um, Well, that's interesting that they did side-by-side comparisons and that was enough to convince them. I I feel like, you know, pro riders and teams, you can show them as much lab data as you want, but unless they actually feel it or see it themselves, then a lot of times they're not convinced, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, What about traction? Because I know that um, at least when I was racing cyclocross several years ago, I mean, I, even though I did eventually make a switch to uh, a tubeless setup that worked very well for me, um, I still always noticed that a very, very supple handmade cotton casing tubular always, it, it even at the same pressure, it, it always felt softer. It always seemed like it was doing a better job of kind of conforming and shaping to the ground. And I have heard... Uh, from pro riders that that is also one of the things that they like about uh, higher end tubulars on the cobbles is the, the the tire seems to kind of conform better and shape better to the cobbles what how would a tubeless tire from continental differ in that respect as well i mean is there any change in traction
3: so um when we talk about traction and grip i think that is one of the big uh competences we have at Continental have have had in the past and also have had when uh, other teams were um, using the, the tubulars blacked out. Um, for road riding, obviously, most of the grip comes from the compound, so the rubber itself, not how uh, the pattern is shaped. Um, obviously, you don't have knobs like with the MTB, um, but we are using the same compound options as for the tubulars as for the tubulars, so there is no difference in the grip that we can measure
0: um, in terms of safety um, you had mentioned that you know with the with the evolution of the the tire and rim standards that um, that one of the I guess one of the reasons why Continental waited so long to get into tubeless tires is you were waiting for some sort of stability in terms of the, um, the, the rim and wheel shapes. So yeah. with, with how things are currently, uh, is everyone involved here confident that uh, the Continental tubeless tires will stay securely on the rim or wheel when the tire is flat at race speed?
3: So a great question that was uh, my pause about. Um, I was thinking about it, but I lost uh, the idea there. So yes, um, when we build a tire, we always have the ETRTO in mind. Um, Obviously with the 5000, we wanted it to fit to ETRTO rims. Unfortunately, the new version, and also the ISO um, version for rims and tires have not been published up to date and I I think it's not clear yet when it will so we have manufacturers that are working in line with the ETRTO and we are having manufacturers that change in half a meter of a a diameter but for our tires obviously that half millimeter can make the, um, the tire really hard to mount that's the good side um, when it comes to a flat tire then if if ETRTO limit and above are in line um, the tire will stick to the rim and if the ETRTO is not respected and going less than what is um, explained there obviously the tire could um, fall into the inner channel of the rim and that's what we don't want to see so We always recommend you have checked that um, the supplier of the manufacturer of your wheels is sticking to the etrto so far i haven't uh, heard of gp 5000 tubeless tires going over rims Um, i think with uh, the stiffness of the bead we're very much on the safe side Um, but i think what what the next developments and the next generation of tubeless tires will face our hookless rims and this will be even more interesting because there we will need even closer limits from from the wheel side from the tire side so that the tire itself stays on the rim for burst pressure but also for cornering and burping like a beat unseating at very low pressures that that stays safe and the tire rim interaction is yeah, more a pleasure and not like a pain.
0: Right, right. Uh, that actually uh, perfectly leads into the next question I wanted to ask you is, uh, I guess speaking of FDJ in particular, uh, I, if I remember correctly, I think that team is on Shimano wheels, correct? Yes. Um, so, I mean, those wheels, as far as I understand, are very much in compliance with current ETRTO standards for the rim diameter and that sort of thing. Um, so for, for that team, it is probably, I guess, easier to make sure that you have a tire that stays on securely at very low pressures because, um, because, because you know what you're working with. However, with this, with this new, uh, this new crop of hookless wheels that are coming about it, it seems like everyone really does want to move over to hookless as far as carbon rim manufacturers anyway, because basically they're easier to make, um, but if everyone starts moving to hookless shapes for their carbon wheels uh and rims how does that affect the etrto standard uh and and where does that look moving forward i know there were a lot of discussions uh behind the scenes as far as establishing a, a proper standard for um, the the bead seat diameter and, and some of the rim shapes and that sort of thing. But from the consumer side, there still seems, and actually even from the media side, there is still quite a bit of confusion as far as where things are really going to settle down. So where does Continental stand on that? How do you, how do you deal with that?
3: Okay. Let me, let me start with a uh, FDJ. Um, you're correct that they are using Shimano and Shimano t- rims typically come with a 17 C inner channel. Um, 17c in a channel is compliant to the etrto and the tire works good with that obviously you would have uh, a more stable tire especially if you're choosing 28s or 32s if you would have a uh, a bigger inner rim bed so um, much likely if you stand your feet together and someone is pushing you side to side you're likely to step one step um into the other direction. But if you place your your feet shoulder wide and someone pushes you, you're much more likely to, to hold that uh, stability. So obviously wider rim beds are better. Um, this thing, second thing is with hookless currently in the ATRTO, there's one rule that maybe sometimes people are not uh, aware of it. That it limits the maximum pressure at five bars so 73 psi Um, for every tire that we are producing for example our gravel tires our mountain bike tires we are very confident and we're believing that this max pressure is alright so it will pass any burst pressure test but obviously on the road five bars is not something you would typically choose for your 25 or uh, 28 millimeter tire so there we have to be in the discussion with the ETRTO but since that one is moving forward quite slowly we're in direct uh, discussion with the big wheel manufacturers and we are currently checking um, maybe you have seen on all Five thousands and all other tires, there is actually the warning on the sidewall if the maximum pressure exceeds five bars, that it says only mount on hooked rims. Um, so for coming upcoming generation, obviously we want to be compatible to those hookless rims. But first, this burst dispersed pressure must be aligned with the maximum pressure written on the tire. Um, Another thing would be burping cornering, and I think um, that that is really currently the not holy grail, but more like a hidden topic. Um, And we have to take a lot of resources into it, R&D testing, to make it sure that if you're going into a a corner and having maybe only three bars in your 28 millimeter tire, but that the bead really stays in contact to the corner of the rim. Because if you would have a sudden loss of pressure, um, more likely to to be called burping in the field, then you would have uh, probably an accident and we don't want that. So even though ETRTO update will be coming, we are in contact with all major uh, wheel manufacturer. So we know who we are talking to and what geometries they are choosing. Um, If we're in line with them, I think we can present the the customer a good opportunity to run hookless with our tires in the future.
0: So from Continental's perspective, however, um, I understand that it is possible to manufacture a tire and hookless rim combination that, uh, that would be considered safe. However, it also seems like uh, from the perspective of a tire manufacturer, you would prefer that uh that rims still have a hook then correct i mean would it be would it be uh, from a tire safety standpoint, would it be better for everyone if rims still had hooked beads
3: so if we want to have a a tire that fits to every wheel out there in the market um regarding of the diameter and regarding of the diameter of uh, our of our tire And it should be easy to mount then yes the best option would be to have a rim with a hook because then you can have a larger um, rim beat diameter um, tire diameter so it will be really easy to mount obviously if you have to tighten those tolerances up the mounting of the tire will be harder to what we know right now so obviously need your tire lever tools and cannot change it with your own hands in the future if we really want to be suitable to all bookless rims in the market.
0: But from what you can see uh, from your perspective and knowing what what different wheel manufacturers are about to introduce, um, does it seem safe to say, though, that more... Companies are moving toward hookless shapes, especially for composite rims.
3: Yeah, sure. So obviously, if you want to to take a textile, you can only pull a textile and not push it. Um, that's the natural habitat, and same same uh, same uh, characteristic belongs to carbons. If you have a straight a straight geometry, you can put a layer of carbon in. And that will take up the forces. If you go around the corner and build that hook, you are having more problems to to have that forces applied. And also, if you are shaping in that complex geometry, um, there could be air bubbles inside the layers. Um, so, yeah, we know that the rim manufacturers want to go there, and that they can reduce the the waste in the production and the production time for the for the rims. So obviously. They wanted to make that choice. Will go for it and push for it also in the market.
0: Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think it's safe to say that there is still uh, quite a lot of work to be done before uh, before things are truly consistent between all the tires and all the different rims and wheels. Um, now, I understand though that I guess coming back to the professional racing aspect, I mean, because you are dealing with a, a smaller combination of variables uh, that it is easier to develop a system and make sure that the equipment that you are providing it performs the way that you want it to and uh, is safe as it should be however it does also seem that from a consumer standpoint right now that there is it sounds like and there will be for quite some time uh, quite a lot of variability in terms of how well everything works together and and quite a lot of question as as uh concerning which combinations will work together. So given all that, uh, it almost sounds like this may be a case where professionals may be possibly more likely to adopt this technology for competition before consumers. Would would you maybe agree with that? I mean, just given how how much more question there is on the consumer side as far as fitment?
3: So I would not fully agree. Um, From our side, we will... Uh, tighten up the tolerances for the bead diameter, um, and we will of course test with the wheels available to our pro teams, um, so they can be sure that we have tested that. Also, to all manufacturers we're in contact with, the, with all the major major ones, um, and they are having recommended list on their website, and they they will have that in the future. Um, and from my side, from my personal side, as for Continental. We will be much happier if we have maybe one combination where you're not able to mount the tire on a rim that is not close to the rules and not sticking to the rules rather than having a tire blowing off a rim. So for us, it's safety first, and that's where we are going. Okay. Um, So that's more our standpoint that the customer can trust into the product. But if the, the wheel of choice is not compliant to the rules of the market to the etrto to the iso then we're open for talks but we are much happier if you cannot mount that tire on the rim
0: okay um well let me ask you this and i guess this is the last question i have for you um and it's a question that we have asked quite a number of people who are who are in the the wheel and tire worlds um i mean on paper there is a lot of there are a lot of reasons to move away from tubulars toward tubeless tire technology. I mean they're, they're supposedly faster and you're saying they can be more durable. Um, you know I, I've heard I've heard arguments that especially when combined with a hookless wheel that they can be more aerodynamic um, you know they're easier to mount and, and remove that sort of thing. Um, but there's still a lot of uncertainty. Um, so from your perspective, I mean, do you envision a day when tubeless tires really truly will replace tubulars completely? And if so, when do you think that might happen both in the racing world and at the consumer level?
3: So from my side, I won't say that the tubulars are dying. Um, They are getting less at the moment. But I think um, that the choices for the customer, for the pro riders, for the ones in competition, and the ones out training and just enjoying the bike riding, there are more options available. Um, the tubular version, obviously, like we talked about, will be still the, the lightest available. Um, you will have the declincher tire with the beautiful inner tube that will be still the e- easiest to mount and to repair out in the field, uh, easiest to maintain. And then we will have probably two things in the middle um, the tubeless tire for the ones opting for benefits and rolling resistance, um, more speed, better compliance on the cobbles, stuff like that. And I think also there will be a differentiation to clinchers with high performance inner tubes um, because they will probably get lighter, new materials will be introduced. Obviously, currently latex is the material of choice um, but there there will be more coming in the future and i think probably you as as the customer will have four options available and you must choose what you're looking for in choice of your tires in the regarding of where you're going um what's the tarmac like what's the competition like yes
0: interesting okay well it sounds like you and i may have to revisit this conversation in another year or two then Well, uh, I'm always
3: happy, I'm always available. Um, We are really working hard at Continental at the moment, and um, probably you will see more stuff uh, available sooner than you think. Um, Just when you are asking for a point of time where things will change. Um, Maybe take a look what happened at the track walls. Um, Probably you see more clincher tires, Um, you might think of,
0: interesting okay well i will keep my eyes open uh yeah nicholas thank you so much for your time i appreciate it very much no problem okay so continental was planning a big big tubeless push at flanders and rivet and we have seen riders using tubeless at flanders and rivet in the past you know with i would say very mixed results i mean alexander Kristoff last year being kind of the the kind of prime example i mean he raced on tubeless at flanders last year and was so happy with them apparently that he was going to race with them at roubaix which he did um but apparently no one told him that he should have gone up in casing width however so i think he started uh he started in uh with what i think he started with 25 mil wide tubeless clinchers mm-hmm. um which is not a good idea at roubaix and su- not surprisingly he flatted and he didn't i don't think i don't even know if he finished i can't remember now um but anyway, uh, so yes, Conti was gonna go big on Flanders and with Tubeless. What do you guys think about this? Because what Jan Nicholas was talking about is still i mean, on paper it's really hard to argue. I mean, he's saying that they're that they were indisputably faster than tubulars. Like you know, he was saying that he put they they put team riders side by side on sections of cobbles, one on tubeless, one on tubulars. And he was saying that the guys were even talking amongst themselves, that they were just noticing how much easier it was to go faster on the tubeless ones than the tubulars. You know, he's saying that even though they're a little bit heavier, they're still still faster. There's the added durability, the resistance to pinch-flatting because there's no tube inside at all. I mean, even latex tubes in a, in a in a tubular, I mean, you can still pinch-flat those. I mean, there's all these advantages on paper that totally make sense. What
2: do you think? That was... There was a lot to unpack in that conversation. Um, he, he gave away a lot. And uh, yeah, I mean, for me, one of the more interesting elements that he brought up was that they do drum testing in-house um, and it sounded like they have quite a, a good setup that's actually quite accurate. Um, he was saying, you know, they can test within 0.1 of a watt. Um, but what was most interesting is that he said, you know, there was what was it like a half a watt difference between the two tubeless models that they they had that they gave to riders, the, you know, the reinforced versus non-reinforced. But then he kind of hinted at that, that doesn't actually matter when you're on cobbles and that the differences are far wider um, and that tire pressure was making a huge, huge difference. So um, I I found that interesting because he was basically saying that uh, in a lab environment, the tubular and tubeless can be quite comparable, but on conditions like cobbles where you're lowering pressures, um, those differences become way way bigger than what the the numbers people normally quote And cite. i mean he was talking about um, stuff like 20 watts which at yeah in in an event like Roubaix,
0: i mean that is absolutely massive i mean i i cannot think of any rider who would be
1: doing rubay who would not just completely kill for twenty watts. i mean riders yeah. riders are doping for 20 watts <laughs> yeah how do we feel about that claim though i mean is that does that pass the sniff test that seems like it's huge that seems like a it, lot of watts yeah like i mean how how much how many watts is rolling resistance taking out period like i guess on cobbles it's more that's why they're hard to ride over but yeah that's not even that's not even is that even rolling resistance anymore or is that just hitting you know, bumps it, it, <laughs> it's, it, like...
0: it's it's hard to say i guess because again like you know we didn't really go into super super deep detail as far as how he was getting those numbers but um mm. i mean I will be very open in saying right now, I have not ridden Roubaix cobbles. I've ridden Flanders cobbles, but I know they're very, very different. And the way, like I always, I always picture the Robbie McEwen way of describing Roubaix cobbles in that like you're basically, you know, flying over the a, a farm field in a helicopter dropping bowling balls out of it. And like, that's basically what you're riding on. Um, and, you know, it, my take was that uh one of the biggest advantages one of the ways that you're able to get that big wattage discrepancy is that um because these tubeless tires are supposedly more durable and because you don't have to worry about the pinch flatting and because you know you don't have to worry as much about rims cracking like you used to because you can run these things at lower pressures than you normally would on even a good top shelf cobble specific tubular that is where you're getting the wattage gains because, you know, you're not getting bounced around as much. I mean, similar to how on on that sort of surface you go faster when you go faster. I mean, it's just easier because you're kind of just clipping the tops of the cobbles. Um, it it seemed to me like you're able to get more of that effect because you are running lower pressure than you would on a tubular.
1: So so is it like? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I'm sort of trying to wrap my head around this. So you know, if you if you're Riding on a relatively smooth surface, the the bulk of rolling resistance comes from that hysteresis, right? Where like you you're sort of deforming the tire and then pushing it back, deforming it over and over again as you as the as the wheel spins. On cobbles, the issue is is more in line with like how mountain bike suspension makes you faster, right? Because every time you hit a cobble, it has to lift your entire weight. Uh, or you and your bike or just your bike or whatever, whether you're unweighted or whatever, it has to lift a bunch of weight up in the air, change the direction of that weight affects your momentum. So that would, I guess then support what what's being said here, which is that if you can run a tire, so it acts more like a suspension component versus just paying attention to that hysteresis number, it can have a, a pretty dramatic effect on overall speed because it, it is it's like it's almost like you're running like a little mini full suspension bike right. right i mean
0: so this is you know it for people who are listening who are who are fans or who follow you know jan heine from uh compass or renee hearst um you know it's something that he's always referred to as suspension losses and uh, that, that is basically exactly what he's talking about just by running that by basically having a softer air cushion between you and the ground you're able to more kind of float as opposed to getting bounced up and down, and there it does, t- and yeah, you know, even even despite, I mean, I think we can all we can all anecdotally say when you are on a bike that is smoother, or if you are on a mountain bike with better suspension, that kind of thing, if you are just able to stay seated in the saddle and continue to put power down instead of getting completely just bucked off of your bike, you are going to be able to go faster. Period.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, if given all that context, that that twenty watt number seems more does seem more realistic because uh, so i have ridden the roubaix cobbles they are you know flanders cobbles are like riding a rumble strip roubaix cobbles are like riding i don't know up and down stairs like it's it's just like it's a totally it's it's ridiculous you're just riding along and and you're just whacking your wheels into square edges over and over and over like you know 50 times a second kind of thing right and i can see how a dramatic improvement, in essentially suspension, would would make a big effect. James, you, you said you mentioned earlier that you know w- when you ride faster over cobbles, you can go faster over cobbles because right. you kind of skim the surface versus falling in into the, all the holes in between each one, right? And that is essentially it's the same thing you're getting out of a a softer tire, and that is super noticeable uh, when you're when you're riding, like when your power drops off. Let's say you can Let's say you can go across the Arberg Forest at 350 watts. If your power starts to drop near the end of that sector, and all of a sudden you're doing 280, you know, on the road, 350 to 280 is, I don't know, what six, seven kilometers an hour or something like that. On cobbles, it's probably like 10 to 15. It's a way more dramatic effect when your power starts to fall off and when your speed starts to fall. And you just lose that momentum, and so I can see how if you had a bike that was basically better suspended, as as we're saying here, that you know riders would be able to feel that stuff. They would be able to feel it, and as they went out and talk about, you know, riding the tubulars and riding the tubeless back to back, and be able to feel it. So I guess that does. The the cynic in me heard that number, that twenty watt number, and was like, no way. Yeah. But now that we've sort of talked around it a bit, I could I can see it. I can maybe that's like on the higher end of feasible, but. Yeah. I mean, it's such a unique surface that it's, I think it's totally possible. Yeah. Yeah. And that 20 watt is specific to that, that surface,
2: right? I, I don't think the claim was that uh, on a smooth surface there's a 20 watt difference, but. Uh, no, it's yeah. right.
0: definitely not on a smooth surface. I mean, a 20 watt difference between high end tires on a smooth surface is, is, would, would absolutely be unbelievable. It's um, impossible. Yeah. But so, so that all being said, I mean, even if you take those claims at face value, take them as truth and whatnot. Um, and one of the things I did talk to Young Nicholas about was the teams that they were working with, I mean, they, they did have the advantage that, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about Envy's you know, foundation wheels and you know, the hookless profiles and how you know, there's some limitations for tire brands and models and that sort of thing. You know, because Conti was working with specific teams and all these teams, if I remember correctly, they were, they're running Shimano carbon wheels. I mean they could basically run and design these tires to work optimally around those shimano wheels and you know one of the reasons why pros still love to run on tubulars is because if you do flat i mean that tire is glued onto the rim like even though it'll be all squirmy and whatnot you know the rubber is not going to fall off of the tire and just dump you to the ground now um because there's so much variability in uh tubed clinchers for sure but definitely in tubeless clinchers as well you can't always guarantee that you know a deflated tubeless tire is going to stay on the rim especially in those kind of conditions but because they were operating with a known uh, you know a known quantity and in that basic one rim model i mean they they were pretty confident that that they were going to be good to go now uh it it does sound like you know tubeless standards are something that we have talked about repeatedly in the last few months and you know either in written form or on the podcast and whatnot and it does sound like we're getting closer to that um but it sounds like we are still a little ways away as well i mean because he even admitted that they're that they're erring on the side of caution as far as safety goes and that there are still going to be some 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 variations as far as how difficult a tire is going to be to get on the rim for example i mean you know Kaylee, you, you know you kind of have this rule that you only run tubeless on a drop bar bike if you're above what like a 30 or 35 mil casing or something like that roughly Yeah 32 33 yeah. and you know there are a lot of good reasons for that. I mean when you have when you have a tubeless road tire that's smaller than that I mean in order to make it safe it, it does have to fit pretty damn tight and if you do get a flat i mean tubeless tires are not completely foolproof i mean you can get a big cut and whatnot or you know your sealant runs dry whatever if you do have to fix it on the side of the road then you know you could be kind of screwed if you can't get that tire off to even put a tube in um so i mean but yeah i mean these pro riders they are not going to have to deal with that so you know confu doesn't have to worry about that so you know, I do still wonder how this is all going to shake out because all this stuff sounds great in a pro racing environment. And I do still think, I mean, Dave, you had a big conversation with Josh Portner from Silky a while ago that you wrote up, um, where he talks mm. about how, you know, his his timeline was that Tubus was going to completely take over the pro peloton within five years. Um, yep. But it, it does still possible. Yeah, time. I mean, it, it does seem like it almost is going to be happening faster than that, though. Like, because in, again, in that environment, you don't have to worry about those variables
2: yeah yeah and i think like the one of the most interesting things um brought up in this in this conversation you had was uh uh just around the standard that you know as you say it sounds like there's some progress on it um but yeah part of that standard he, he hinted that there might be um all rim manufacturers might be required to publish lists of tires that actually go with their rims uh unless i misheard that but uh, that's that's sort of uh, what I took out of that, was um, that there could be exact lists of what works and what doesn't work, and that there will also, as an outcome of that, be products that are not cross-compatible. So I think we're getting a lot closer to, one, pros being able to use it, but then also that transferring over to what is good for consumers. I agree,
0: I agree. And And then until we get to that point, I mean, as much as having some sort of def- you know narrowly defined list of compatible tires would be from an end consumer. I feel like that would still be a grand improvement over just completely guessing what'll fit. Because um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, as you all know, we have our Velo Club membership program, and one of the biggest benefits of that for people that we keep hearing about all uh, that we keep hearing about over and over again is the, the Slack channel where the members can just kind of talk amongst themselves and kind of you know get help with stuff and whatnot, and, and um, A member the other day was talking about uh, some difficulty that he was having with installing some tubeless tires on his rims. And again, I mean, on paper, everything should work together. But if you have a rim that's on the high end as far as a diameter and then you have a tire that's on the low end in terms of diameter, those things are just not going to work together. And until you actually physically have them in your hand and put them on. You really just don't know if it's going to work. I mean, that's obviously a huge inconvenience. But if you have the other, um, if you have the vice, the opposite situation, where you have a smaller rim and a bigger tire, that at that point constitutes a safety issue. So I would much rather have a predefined list and a smaller selection of tires that I know will safely work than just guessing.
2: Exactly, and that I think over over time will probably force rim manufacturers to to match. You know. Uh, I assume a lot of the tire brands will probably end up agreeing on this, on what sizing to do. Uh, And I think it'll, it'll force the rims to, to follow suit. So um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean like that, that, that 2021 model year giant TCR that, that I just wrote up on the site. Um, that top-end model comes with Giant's, um, I guess, new high-end high, uh, new high-end in-house brand KDEX, which is sort of a a, rehash, a recycled name from way back when. Um, but um, I'm going to do a separate review. Of, I'm going to do a separate review of those wheels at some point. But one thing that is notable with those wheels right now is that, uh, unless I read something wrong, Giant currently only approves those wheels to be run tubeless with their own tires which is a massive limitation um, I would suspect that that list will grow but as of right now if you get a set of those wheels you can only run giant tires um, yeah for a lot of people that's actually going to be a deal breaker so oh, yeah. I, I don't know I mean so not to go you know not to go too far into the weeds on this but um, you know we still are dealing with this issue with uh, sort of you know, tire and rim tubeless road standards that are not set in stone and still don't have any sort of firm timeline as far as when that's going to happen so i mean it's still super frustrating i mean in, in in light of that like i said i mean i would encourage every rim and tire and wheel manufacturer to you know do whatever they can to publish that list i mean if only for their own liability purposes. I mean, like if I had a tubeless wheel, a tubeless tire blow off the rim when I'm going downhill, and I just you know shredded myself when I'm descending at 60 k an hour or something, I would not be happy about that. No,
2: not at all. And and on that topic, like MB is a, a great example of a company doing that already in the market. They have a, a long list of tires that are approved and not approved for use with their their hookless bead, um, and that's based on safety. I mean, their their test, to be honest, is a little unrealistic should i say they they inflate the tire to 1.5 times the maximum recommended pressure on the tire which if you're running tubeless you're not getting anywhere near that maximum recommended pressure to begin with um, and then if it if the tire fails then um it blows off the rim then it gets on the non-approved list um, so at the moment continental uh, their gp 5000 tl tire is actually on the non-approved list um as far as tires that don't pass that Uh, And that was something that was mentioned, is that the the next generation of tires, he hinted at that they would actually pass these tests. Um, So yeah, I thought that was quite interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you'd have to think that of of any tire company, Conti would be among the most conservative. Just I mean, they were, you know, one of the last ones to introduce anything tubeless, uh, on the road anyway. Um, They're sort of historically super safe and conservative and testing things like crazy um we also do have to remember that envy is an american company and i hate to say it americans tend to sue people for anything and everything so <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, you know that test may be unrealistic but it may also be what their lawyers it. so it's good to play it safe
2: when we're talking about tire staying on it,
0: it is and that's the sort of thing like i said it's the sort of thing that i don't like to think about when i am coming down one particular corner that i always end up thinking about regardless you know for for those of you who have ridden in boulder colorado you know when you are rocketing down lee hill road coming back into town and there is that fast sweeping left-hander when you're kind of looking over the edge over into the abyss of nothing and you sort of imagine what would happen if you had a mechanical right there it would not be pretty so i try not to think about it and uh (laughs) It sounds like you think about a lot. You know, it's, it's, hard, it's hard not to. It's hard not to. I mean, I've had all sorts of thoughts going through my head through that corner. And it, I, I, it is it's a scary, scary corner. corner. I mean, if everything goes right, it's great. It's super fun. But if anything goes wrong, it could be really ugly. And uh, let's just say as I've gotten older, and especially after I had a kid, I've definitely been taking that corner a lot more conservatively.
1: It's super sandy right now, too. I wrote it this morning. Mm,
0: indeed, indeed. So anyway, <laughs> in light of that tubeless tires it sounds like you know that five year timeline for the pros adopting it and mass is maybe on track, if not even you know might even happen a little bit quicker than that, and you know we're going to still continue to see what happens on the consumer side, so uh, I dare say that we are going to be talking about this again in a future
2: nerd alert podcast indeed and it sounds like there was, uh quite a number of products if you listen back on that there was quite a number of tease products in there that i'm sure we'll be talking about in the future yeah about. yeah well i mean um, two, you know you mentioned two four, four seasons season yeah two four seasons oh, so, yeah. yep
0: i mean the force the grand prix four seasons is one of the most popular tires that they have i mean it's just kind of a legend for you know for durability and longevity and that kind of thing and to offer that kind of thing in tubus yeah, that have that kind of have that kind of that kind of uh, toughness and you know running
1: tubeless with steel length inside. I mean, that could be like an uh, absolutely an ultimate training tire. Could be. Oh yeah, we'll see. Since Zach isn't here this week, I feel like I need to stand up for everyone that hates tubeless tires. It's a pain. I'm not. I'm not going to argue and with you. It's <laughs> a total pain in the ass. And say road tubeless sucks. If you're a racer and you want the watts, okay. But I just, man, I just don't. It's such a pain in the butt. That said, I flatted a regular clincher this morning, and I had to fix it at the top of the hill. and But it took me like, I don't know, two and a half minutes? It did. And it happens to me like twice a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I don't get
0: it. Yep. I don't get it. Well, you know, if if we lived in Arizona or something like that, where there are goat heads all over the roads, not just
2: on the trail. I mean, there are... Or you live in an urban environment. Yeah, I mean, there are absolutely... Or in Sydney, where there's broken glass bottles Mm, everywhere. Lovely. (laughs) I mean, I don't understand why, but it's
0: a thing. Uh, Who knows? Well, whatever the reason. I mean, there are absolutely reasons, or there are absolutely regions where tubeless has more of an appeal on the road than it does, I guess, where we are here in Colorado, anyway. Um, But... I mean, yeah, if they can make it so that it is, you know, a more consistent fit and easier to get on and off and that sort of thing. And then at that point, it, yeah, it becomes a lot less of a hassle. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll talk about it again in another episode,
1: I'm sure. We will. All right, guys. You think it's time to wrap up here? It is. We have we have to go to another uh, all-hands cycling tips phone call in six minutes. Oh, oh, well, that, um,
0: hmm.
2: I, I don't know if that's going to happen, actually, because that's a public holiday
1: here oh slackers good friday that would
0: be that would be really good because uh i can't remember if this was on the recorded part of the podcast or not but i have some pretzel buns to make right now and my dough (laughs) my dough should have fully risen by now i need to get my my little alkaline water solution boiling so i can you know dip some buns in there and get the get that nice little shiny brown surface on there (laughs) I got some work to do because I'm hungry and I want some burgers on pretzel buns. Yeah. I think, I think let's call it, let's call the meeting off. All right. You know, we're done. It's settled. It's settled. No meetings. All right. (laughs) We've had enough (laughs) zoom meetings this week. Indeed. I'm over it. Thanks for listening everyone. We will see you back in a couple of weeks. Bye.
1: Bye.